0: My guests on this episode are Johnny Lieberman and Zach Miller, who together founded Workland Partners to acquire and grow cybersecurity and IT services companies. A concept we talk a lot about in the episode is how the two businesses create a flywheel between each other. I find these flywheels fascinating, and I've talked about others, such as a flywheel between media and data, with FreightWaves founder Craig Fuller in episode 121. Johnny and Zach share how the two business models function both together and independently, where growth is coming from and trends driving that growth, developing sales teams, and why only the paranoid survive. Enjoy. Today's sponsor Q&A is with Oberly Risk Strategies, a modern insurance broker serving small companies, search funds, and other small company acquirers and investors. CEO August Felker joins me today. So inflation is in the news. Does that have any impact on insurance?
1: That's a a great question. So, you know, they say inflation has gone up anywhere between five, 10% over the last year, and um, when we're talking to our clients, we have to kind of remind them that, you know, if they bought a million dollars of insurance limits last year, that million dollars doesn't uh, have the same power it did this year because of inflation. So it's something that we're talking to clients almost every day on their renewal. Say, hey, do, are you purchasing enough limits, especially in light of inflation? Another area to think about it is also if you're insuring like a building, or your property or your assets in a business, the cost to replace those assets is going up by 10% plus, increased cost of construction. So it's just every year when you're going through your insurance renewal, especially in an inflationary environment, you just got to make sure that you got the right values on there and work with your insurance broker to confirm those so that if you do have a claim, you're not underinsured.
0: Great. Thanks, August. To learn more about Oberly Risk Strategies, please reach out to August directly at august.felker at overly riskcom and visit their website at overly riskcom I also want to thank our other show sponsors, Hood & Strong, Ravix Group, and Oakborne Advisors for supporting the show. And now to the episode. We were talking about kind of early days of Workland and you raised initial capital to acquire the first two companies and then raised another growth round of capital. Can you kind of walk through the, the timeline of Workland a little bit?
2: So. Johnny, I, just to give you context, I think there's an SEC filing out there that says we raised 14.2 or something. So that th- what, what I'm guessing that is, I'm 99% sure that is, is that's the capital we called. So we raised committed capital at the end of 2021. And then a portion of that committed capital was allocated and, and used to fund our first two deals.
3: Yeah, that's right. So... The first funds, $40 million of committed capital, first two deals, $14 and, and a quarter. And, you know, the, the fund was closed and the first two deals were completed, you know, all within kind of a one-month span at the end of last year, 2021.
0: Yeah, I've, I've, I've enjoyed using SEC filings as an interesting way to track what investors are doing. There's, you know, occasional like fundraises that aren't announced yet, but there's a filing to go check them out and read a little bit about them. So... I, I tend to, I've incorporated SEC filings as part of my po- both podcast and business research now. So I was kind of curious about that. But yeah, can you kind of walk through the early days and then what Workland is today?
3: Yeah, uh, absolutely. So Zach and I started working together in August of, of 2020, five or so months into uh, the COVID 19 pandemic. And I had just finished business school at, at HBS, and Zach was, two of three years complete with his JD MBA at at Penn. And I called Zach and I said, you know, now's the time. <laughs> and he said, you know, hey, come on, really. But <laughs> we had been talking about working together for a long time. And I used to drag him on calls with perspective investors when I was just trying to, you know, get a basic understanding of what the the, the different avenues of entrepreneurship through acquisition really were. And I used to introduce Zach and hey, you know this this is my partner Zach and he'd say you know I'm definitely not his partner but would love to learn you know what's going on in the industry <laughs> so you know we, we did a sequence of these calls you know, throughout 2020 and August comes and I, I managed to convince Zach to take a leave of absence from his JD MBA and, and start working and you know at that time knew we wanted to focus on on technology. You know, we were pretty sure we wanted to do something in IT services and cybersecurity, but the exact thesis was confirmed in the fall of 2020. Zach, maybe you want to just touch on yeah. that. Yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, so I didn't take as uh, maybe as much convincing as as Johnny says, right? Like, so I think in the beginning, I did. Like when we started, as Johnny mentioned, we really started just as friends who were talking about, you know, doing something entrepreneurial together, and. I had always had my background was investing and advising in cybersecurity, and I had you know basically helped start a, a private equity fund at my last job, or at, at the job I spent the majority of my time before grad school at, called the Chertoff Group, and we were investing in cybersecurity services businesses and had some great success, and I was in charge of sourcing and and diligencing and helping to execute our, our investments in growth stage cybersecurity businesses. And I think it was that experience that always stuck with me where what I saw was as the guy in charge of sourcing, kind of on the front lines, a lot of businesses that weren't quite big enough for us, You know, lifestyle, founder-owned businesses with great customers that love them and, and talented people, but that you know hadn't made that jump to being large enough for private equity, and weren't quite growthy enough for venture capital, and they were sort of this orphan class that of companies that that didn't have a you know a home in terms of exits, and so that thesis had always been sticking around with me. And the other thesis that I had coming out of those days advising investing in cybersecurity is look for middle market businesses and SMBs that don't have their own IT security professionals. They want IT and cybersecurity from one one one-stop shop, one throat to choke. Right? They don't want to have to contract with six different providers to make sure that their IT systems work and to make sure that they're secure. And so there was this ongoing convergence of cybersecurity and IT, which had you know historically been two different, really two different lines of business. And so I, that that was the sort of industry thesis behind what we were doing. So when Johnny was when Johnny was getting me involved in these calls with investors, I began to realize like, hey, this this whole entrepreneurship through acquisition model could be adapted to facilitate the roll-up strategy at this fragmented intersection of cybersecurity and IT services, which was something that I had always had designs on on doing myself. But yeah, no, the the actual moment of truth was I think August 2020, where I, I had I had a awesome remote internship with a really great publicly traded cybersecurity company called Okta. Everyone I worked with was smart. Everyone was kind of like the the business was was firing pretty well. And I kind of looked around. I was like, God, I'm not having much of an impact here. Like, I don't know. I don't know that I'm adding much value here. And it's really awesome to to work on a great technology tool with a great team, but they've already done it. And I want to go do, I want to build something myself and build something with a friend and take a risk and bet on myself.
3: So I, I think what was really interesting, Alex, is Zach saw a number of companies that his prior firm invest in that, that were potentially complementary, right? And because of the structure and you know other details, the, these firms weren't under an entity structure that promoted collaboration, right? And one of the ideas we had was, can we use a holding company structure to promote companies that should be partnering together to serve the same customer to do so in the most efficient way. So if you buy companies that have slightly different specializations that would naturally want to partner with each other, even if not owned by the same company, can you promote that collaboration by buying these businesses under the same holding company? And and I think that's when we kind of really settled on uh, a thesis and an entity structure and a hold period, right? Building for the long term. That, that we ended up raising our, our fund around.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. And as as Zach and I talked about, so as I understand it, you have two platforms. There's one cybersecurity platform and then an IT platform. And they they work collaboratively together, but structure wise they're two different platforms. How can you walk through how that works and how they interact?
3: That's exactly right. So the thesis is that, you know, we're going to pursue a multi-acquisition strategy on the IT services side. There's a lot of private equity roll-ups going on in the MSP space. What we're doing is slightly different. We're going to build value right by doing m and, and buying businesses that are profitable and building a basic cash flow just as private equity is doing. But we're targeting businesses that, you know, maybe are are slightly different from the mold or, or kind of narrow MSP business model that private equity is. And, and that's because one of the largest ways we're going to create value is by selling cybersecurity in our proprietary MDR solution, which is a combination of tech and people through to all the IT services businesses that we buy and, and use that kind of captive channel to grow the cybersecurity business. And what, what we end up with you know, is, like you said, a holding company with two platforms. We have the cyber platform, which is really an organic growth play, right? And then we have an IT services platform that's a, a cash M&A play, and and we're going to be able to use the cash generated by the IT services platform to to reinvest in the cyber products and, and tech enabled service.
0: So how come you're using acquisition on the IT side, but not cyber? Does does cyber not grow through M and A nearly the same same way? You you talked about the cybersecurity being organic growth, while IT is through acquisition. How come they're not both through acquisition? Is there does how does each company or each side grow differently? Like what what's different between the two? Yeah.
2: No, it's it's a great question because I think from a bird's eye view, you look at these two businesses, and you're like, geez, these look awfully similar. And you know, why aren't they one? Why don't you just jam them all into one platform? Or well, why don't why why aren't you pursuing more or less the same strategy on each side? And I will caveat this by saying. On the cybersecurity side, there very likely will be an acquisition or two, but it will be very strategic acquisitions where it's like, listen, this particular capability needs to be added. And the most efficient way to add it is is via an acqui-hire Or, hey, opportunistically, we found another Competimate that looks really similar to us and they happen to use our software already uh, or some variety of our, our software that's available open source. So maybe it makes sense to combine forces. That probably, I mean, that, that very likely will happen. But we don't think of the cybersecurity platform strategy as an M&A-based strategy. And we won't be as you know dead set on multiple acquisitions on that side because the business models are just a little different. Cybersecurity as an industry is growing a little bit faster. And in particular, the space we play in Uh, which is managed security services or managed detection and response, which you can think of as basically outsourced 24 by seven security monitoring, threat detection and response for customers. That space is, is growing quite fast. So there, there is a lot of organic growth to be had. And then also you look at that business, the business we own incredible business in Florida. You know, they've built their own technology platform and that requires, you know, a great team of developers and engineers, led by a great CTO, and that requires some investment in, in R and D. So you almost look at that business as close to a, a software business model. Whereas on the IT services side, you know, primarily you find businesses that are partnering with large software vendors or large hardware vendors, and you know, adding services on top of that. A slightly different business model, slightly different vectors of investment. And you know, it, it affords the ability. You know, ma- they may not grow as fast these IT services businesses; that they grow steadily, but they they kick off a lot of cash that that can be you know used as a basis for you know more acquisitions and and some some putting some leverage on the business.
3: Yeah, I, I think another reason that it's it makes less sense to do multiple acquisitions of similar managed section response businesses is that the likely revenue multiple that you're paying for these businesses largely reflects the IP or, or technology within the businesses. And uh, it doesn't make sense to buy what would likely be duplicative technology because, you know, the reason you're paying a revenue multiple to begin with is that they can scale with, with customers, right? So it makes much more sense to go and acquire customers to feed into this scalable technology that you already paid a revenue multiple for
0: you must view the it business partly as or perhaps mostly as customer acquisition for kind of the downstream cybersecurity products as well then
2: i think it's both right like i think the large number of private equity firms that are currently in this space executing msp rollups msp is managed service provider msp it services rollups is evidence of the fact that there is a pretty, you know, just juicy opportunity in doing that, and we see that opportunity too, right? And I think we are benefiting from many of the same things that those MSP uh, those MSP rollups are benefiting from. But there's this sort of double dip value creation opportunity where that has that MSP rollup is going to create equity value on its own but it's also going to create tremendous equity value for our other cybersecurity platform in the in the sense of, you know, creating new customer opportunities, cross-selling opportunities, and also in the sense of, you know, that IT services arm is going to help help our cybersecurity platform continue to grow and mature and best feed the channel because for the middle market customer like we talked about that we're we're really building with with the middle market in mind, right? So think about a, a school district in Florida or a, a regional airport in Ohio, right? That that doesn't have a massive team of IT security professionals in-house. In order to build for and, and serve that customer, typically that customer just basically says, look, whoever my IT services provider is, if I trust them, um, I want them to be in charge of, of my cybersecurity as well. And so you need to, if you're building a cybersecurity business for the middle market, you need to figure out how to partner, how to play nice with IT services partners. And this platform really enables us to do that.
0: Yeah, we've had similar thoughts. We, as in my work at HW Media, we've had similar thoughts around how media and data combine in kind of similar ways where your, your media business and audience can feed folks to your data product. And one question I have, I have a kind of question around sales because there's, we have a sales team for media sales, but it's it's kind of a different ballgame to sell enterprise software, enterprise data. Is there a similar dynamic between sales in IT services and cyber, or are they more complementary than you would think?
2: I think they're pretty complementary. In one sense, we, we still have direct sales at the cybersecurity company, but in one sense, maybe you're you're building a team that's more focused on selling through the channel on selling through a partner rather than on selling directly to the end customer whereas on the it services side you might be more focused on going directly to the end customer but i think you know th- there's more similar than different in, in the go to market models and in the use of digital marketing and you know other kind of online guerrilla marketing models as well i think there's there's more similar than different.
0: Can you, can you kind of walk through how sales works on the IT side? Be kind of curious what that looks like and how how does a how does a potential customer work their way through and get into cyber?
2: Yeah. So it depends on the end customer. You know, we have an IT business, for instance, that does a lot of work with state and local and education customers. That sales cycle and that sales process is entirely different. Than say if we were selling IT services to SMB, you know, local credit union or a uh, or a local media company, the sales cycle is really different. So I guess I'll start. I'll I'll say at a high level on the IT services side, increasingly the conversation is actually now starting with cybersecurity, and that gets to that convergence that I mentioned earlier, as opposed to maybe ten years ago where it started with hey. I got a bunch of servers that I'm trying to manage on my own and it's not going so well. And so I'd I'd like an expert to come in and manage my servers and you know manage a couple other critical IT systems for me. So nowadays you see it a lot of times starting with something like cyber insurance. Like, hey, I've got to I'm I'm an end customer. Let's say I'm a, a small healthcare system and I have a cyber insurance premium. I mean I have a cyber insurance plan. And the cyber insurance plan basically said I'm not we're not gonna write you a new insurance policy until you do X, Y, and Z to you know show that your cybersecurity is somewhat shorn up. And then you know where where we would come in, where the Workman platform comes in, is both as an advisor to help you figure out what you need to do, and then as an implementer. This is the IT services side, not the cyber side, to help you implement some of these you know more basic security controls like having multi-factor authentication, and then at the end to provide ongoing 24 by seven monitoring of your security as a IT, I mean, as a company. So I, I give that example of cyber insurance to say, there's just so many different ways the customer journey can start. It's hard to paint it with a one size fits all brush. Johnny, I guess I, I'm curious if you, if you think there's a more consistent way to describe the customer
3: journey. Yeah. So, so I think that, the most interesting dynamic is observing existing customers that we have on the IT side and trying to draw a pattern of you know on when is the right time for them to buy mdr and i think what we see is that there's largely three demand drivers for cyber you have ransomware or maybe one of their competitors got breached you know or or the ceo Uh, you know, got some pressure by the board, right? Based on an article in the New York Times. That's one. The second is, as Zach mentioned, cyber insurance, right? Uh, Especially in state and local, where where we do a lot, uh, it's becoming increasingly difficult to even get into one of these excess liability pools or, or, or kind of broader state offerings, right? There's very little option. And in the commercial market, you're seeing premiums go up, you know, in some case, double year over year. So that's two. And then the third is compliance. If you're in an in industry with, you know, increasing compliance, HIPAA or, you know, in manufacturing, there's, there's a, a new compliance regime called CMMC that's relevant and, and driving demand for increased cyber. But the point is, is that, you know, we know that a lot of our existing customers on the IT side are going to need to sign up for MDR. And the reason, you know, we love owning those businesses is that, we can be there when whatever one of those three triggers them to to finally dedicate a significant portion of their it. wallet towards cyber. but you can't always predict when. and I think you know the, the thing about cyber over the past couple of years is everyone's been predicting these you know waves of mass adoption in the mid market. And you know I think in a lot of times it, in the mid- market s and b, it's happened slower than than folks have have predicted. but you know our view is if we can be there and serve the mid-market on the IT side and help them through that journey, you know, maybe first cloud migration and then, you know, comprehensive outsourced cybersecurity, that's a great place to be in because, you know, you're hanging around the hoop waiting for them to, you know, have the budget or or to have the management team that understands the value in an outsourced cyber partner.
0: Yeah, you hadn't touched on it a little bit, but the, I mean mentioning the different drivers for the business, but what are some high-level, maybe industry tailwinds that you've observed that are kind of pushing the business along? Yeah, I think I think Johnny said it right with like ransomware and actual attacks. Either
2: you know, people get get hacked and and get ransomed, or they hear about a a friend or a competitor who it happens to, and and that gets them pretty concerned. Cyber insurance and and compliance are are two more on the cybersecurity side that are driving a large increase in demand. And then the one that isn't. Johnny didn't mention, but I think and is, is in a slightly different category, but but must be discussed is there's a massive talent shortage, right? In terms of cybersecurity professionals who are skilled who could come in and protect an IT distributed, you know, hybrid cloud IT environment. That's hard to find, right? And so many and say most customers, small enterprise and down, throw up their hands and say, look, I'm not going to build an internal team that monitors my security 24 by seven. That's really hard to do and really expensive. I'm going to outsource that job as well as a number of cybersecurity jobs to a team of professionals who, who do this every day. And that's in part because there just aren't enough skilled cybersecurity practitioners to fill every role that a firm would want them to. So that's on the cyber side. And then I think on the IT side, you know there's there's cloud transformation of course right or 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 cloud migration that's driving a lot of new business but i i actually think there's a surprising number at least you know it's been surprising to me if i think back to 2 years ago just how many how many customers that we serve or that we'd want to serve that are out there that haven't fully migrated to the cloud and don't plan to anytime soon right like you'll see some hey, let's put a couple applications in the cloud, but we need servers on premise to do X, Y, and Z. You see a lot of that. And I think we'll continue to see that. I don't want to say that we're we're betting against the cloud, but I'll just say the cloud is is uh, like companies pushing all of their apps to the cloud might be, we still might be a ways away from that.
3: Yeah. And I think just following on on that very last point, you know, a lot of the industries that that we serve You know, have a a critical infrastructure component, or you know, maybe the transportation vertical, hospitals, and you know, the the OT operational technology environment, and how that intersects with IT is pretty damn complicated. And you know, if you layer on, you know, all these new security tools that you know trade publicly in the NYSE or Nasdaq, and then you think about you know the short talent shortage, those three things add up to a pretty overwhelming amount of work, you know, for an internal team to be able to handle to properly secure themselves. And I think you're seeing all three of those dynamics only increase where, you know, the the choice to outsource is becoming more clear.
0: Do you think the challenges with hiring that talent internally is driving most of that? Or do you think one, maybe one other driver is more responsible for that, that movement towards outsourcing?
3: I really think it's the combination of talent shortage, or, you know, I think it's all, so definitely talent shortage, big part of it. Why does the talent shortage exist? If you step back and think about it, this is a problem, especially focused cybersecurity expertise, not, not IT, but, but cyber that's become really important across businesses in a relatively short amount of time, right? It was always a risk for, you know, critical government entities or, maybe critical infrastructure, but for your average mid-market, yeah, banks, you know, other kind of life death or large money at risk. But for your average mid-market business or SMB, cybersecurity was was pretty low down on the business disruption risk analysis. That's changed. It's changed really quickly. And I think what you know what's happened is there are not enough kind of post grad or or college opportunities to focus in this, to support how large of a problem it is right now. If you think about your average board, you know, even at the lower enterprise, very unlikely that anyone on that board has security expertise, you know, sub 10% chance. And, you know, I think that's a really interesting dynamic to watch, right? Where, you know, has has there been a, another problem that's become so critical so quickly where you have very few people in management positions that actually know a thing about it? Yeah,
2: I agree. I think that you know this all kind of harkens back to the talent shortage, which I agree with Johnny. I think is the primary driver in demand for outsourced cybersecurity services. Also, by the way, makes makes our jobs a little harder, right? Because we have really talented security professionals who, you know, we're we're always we always got to make sure that they like coming to work every day because there's a lot of there's a lot of demand for them. But I would say on the flip side. This is a secondary trend, but it's an interesting one. Johnny mentioned these publicly traded cybersecurity product companies, right? The the CrowdStrikes of the world, the Palo Alto networks of the world, great businesses, right? But they, they have done a great job penetrating the enterprise markets, where they have penetrated less, where there's more organic white space for them to, to, to go after. Is down in the middle market with the customers that are just waking up to cybersecurity that are saying, "Oh shoot, I really do need to get some of these Palo Alto firewalls or some of this CrowdStrike, some of these CrowdStrike endpoint licenses." But for Palo and, and CrowdStrike, and I'm just using those two as examples. But for all these large software technology companies that sell software tools, cybersecurity software tools, you, you can't really hire enough salespeople. To penetrate the middle market. So they need to rely upon channel partners. And again, that's where the outsourced service provider can actually be helpful to the broader industry ecosystem, because the outsourced service provider can say, all right, you know, pick, your, pick your cybersecurity tool company, let's partner up, I'll hire some folks who really know how to implement your software, and I'll serve as a sales channel for you and, and resell your software and, and take some margin and it's a real win-win, and that's why you see, you know, if you look at the the major cybersecurity players that are publicly traded, big big software companies, they talk a lot about the quote-unquote channel about MSPs and MSSPs because that is increasingly how they go to market to serve the the segment of the market where there is the most white space.
0: So, with that in mind, do you think there be value in, you talk, we talked a lot about how IT and cyber interact and have this flywheel between the two, but could that flywheel also extend to IT or cybersecurity software business or some other service tool or business that can support one of those businesses? Or on the flip side, do you see any of these cybersecurity software companies starting to acquire companies like the ones that you look at at Workland?
3: Yeah, I think we're seeing both. When we, uh, you know, when Zach and I see the Palo Altos of the world trying to layer on services to their kind of core products as a way to penetrate the mid-market, I think we're a little bit less concerned just because the DNA of those companies and where the real value is driven is is around products, product development cycles, market share within those defined segments, whether they be firewalls, you know, five to 10 years ago or Zero Trust now. I think, you know, services are, if you want to be critical, an attempt to move down market to support growth in what may be a declining product market, a more competitive product market. I think the way we look at our offering and who we compete with is we lead with services and we have technology that makes our services much better. And our tech development, uh, you know, we try to approach technology development and our IP with a lens towards how is this making our security operations center or customer delivery better, right? And I think that's a very different lens than CrowdStrike or Palo Alto are taking, right? They, they need to create the next product that is able to compete to achieve those, you know, 20 to 40x NTM revenue multiples that, you know, the, the, the Bessemer table shows and, and that they're compared against. So I, I just, I, I think that we're going to continue to compete, you know, at Workland and at Quadrant, the cybersecurity platform that we own against companies that lead with services that view themselves as tech enabled, that want to focus on the mid-market primarily and not as a way to supplement growth at the enterprise.
2: But yeah, so I agree with that. And I would say, to put it simply, right? the, the investors backing the product companies, whether that be an endpoint product or a hardware product or software product, they're not going to let whether, and whether those investors be public investors or private equity or VC, they're not going to let their gross margins be destroyed, right? These are, these are companies with 80, 80% plus gross margins. And services is just, uh, you can't get the same gross margins, right? You're, you're, you're basically selling smart people when you're selling services. Smart people are expensive. So I think you know, all, these, all these product companies have a services arm that they're rolling out and it's kind of a consultative sales engine for them. But none of them are going to build armies and armies of services professionals. You know, none of these software companies with 80% margins want to morph into Deloitte or, or PwC and and become services shops, right? So I, I think I agree with Johnny, right, that we think the the primary competition to us still is going to come from, you know, other service providers. And to answer your question, can can a service provider end up buying a product company and and fitting that in, I, I think the answer is yes, but it has to be the right type of product. I think if you're a services company first and your services first, and you wanna be owning the end customer relationship and really helping them in a holistic manner, you can't be too reliant on any one product because you have to be able to look at a customer and say, all right, based on your environment, you need X, Y, and Z, but my other customer has a different environment and they need A, B, and C. And I want to do what's best for the customer. And I think that results in some me- some measure of product agnosticism, at least for you know the, the certain products that are are becoming critical in IT and, and cybersecurity stacks.
0: You mentioned how software companies want to focus on the areas that you know keep their gross margin margin high and generate the most value for their, their business. Within Workland, where do you see most of the value being created, and is it through more sustainable revenue, better products like what what makes workland a more valuable company over time?
3: yeah I think it's more sustainable revenue delivered via high value recurring services like managed detection response and a bundle of critical managed i t services so the way we the way we view kind of the end state is that We've built out a bundle of IT services that have specialization in the most important things. And delivered together in a bundle, you can be that outsourced go-to IT vendor and cyber vendor. So we have complementary managed IT services and managed cybersecurity services. And I think if, if you get that right, you're really sticky because you know you're not only protecting the user's environment, right? with the managed detection response, you know, the the managed cyber, you're also there day-to-day, right, with smaller problems managing the IT environment, whether that be, you know, network monitoring for for an on-prem environment or help with something, you know, a remote workforce. You know, I, I think when the customer turns over the keys, both for IT and cyber, you become very sticky. And I think your retention stats, you know, show that.
2: Yeah, I agree with what Johnny said. I'll I'll just say a weird answer, which is I look at it as people. That's the most important thing we can invest in to grow equity value at Work Workland to improve and grow the businesses that we own. It's people every day, right? So it's you know salespeople or go to market people who also are practitioners and know enough about IT and cyber that they can have consultative conversations with with. And customers that actually, you know, move the needle for them. And then it's practitioners and service delivery folks who are, you know, salesy enough and sort of commercial enough to know that, hey, we've got this whole bigger portfolio of offerings. And for this customer, you know, these, these type of things might make sense. Those are just two examples, right? But to me, it's, these are people businesses. And, and while there's tech enabling them and enabling us to have superior gross margins to a typical services business, at the end of the day, you still end up scaling by by adding more brands. So that's what you know we're we're really focused on every day.
0: Yeah. How have you been working to continue attracting great people to your teams?
2: Yeah, I mean I think it's more challenging right when when you start with a small business that that doesn't have a brand, right? And so I think the the solution, the hack there, to the extent there is one and, and there isn't really one, is is just for for Johnny and I to spend time on it, right? And and to say, hey, look, if you come here, you know, you'll you'll be a part of of building something great and you'll get a lot of touch points with us and you'll have input into, you know, key strategic decisions versus you go to a bigger company and you're kind of a, a cog in the machine. And and I think you want to find people who are like myself and like Johnny, who have been cogs in really big, really successful machines and said, this is great. And this is you know not a bad way to, to spend my career. But this isn't ultimately what's fulfilling for me. What's fulfilling for me is is building and having some input into direction of, of this business. So we need those type of people. And I think those are also the, the the type of people we're most likely to attract. But I think we have to be involved, right? We can't, we can't pass it all off to a recruiting firm and and uh, you know sign here when when they when they show up right. We have to we have to be involved in selling the vision and and spending time with key hires.
3: I, I think there are two other specific points that that have, have really helped us uh, recruit. I think the first is when you're building a, a broad kind of portfolio of specializations. I think. That's really attractive to uh, younger talented folks that want to learn about technology because what it allows is for someone to come in and potentially uh, focus on you know the Cisco network at airports or bus terminals or schools and then if they do a really good job there they have the opportunity to pivot and go work at the cybersecurity business you know after three years and and learn a completely different skill set and Maybe move from the security operations center to you know the the development team or the engineering team, and I think that sort of mobility, while also moving upwards, is is a pretty unique offering, right? Where someone can kind of build a career across different tech specializations internally at Workland. I, I think the second thing I want to mention is that we structured our fund in a way where for managers and and for owners that are selling to us. You know, they have an opportunity to roll into Workland, the holding company, and have exposure to what we're building overall. And I think that's a, that's a really important differentiator for us because the pitch comes down to, hey, you know, instead of a, you know, a stake or, or management options in a single operating company, as is the case with, you know, the private equity model, we, you know, when it makes sense, have the opportunity to have, you know, that person sit pair with LPs in the fund. And I think that's just a very conversation when trying to attract top talent.
0: Can you say a bit more on that? I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about how you've structured management compensation and incentives.
3: Yeah, so I I think to start, it's the the opportunity to roll equity into into Workland uh, for sellers that are considering, you know, taking chips off the table and, and. Potentially selling a majority of their business, but rolling a portion of the equity uh, along with us if they continue to operate. Uh, The way we thought about it was: you know, we're not buying businesses just because we see, you know, uh, yes, some of the businesses we're buying are attractive independently of what we're doing. I would say all of them are, but we think that they're much better as part of a portfolio that can collaborate and work together to serve the same end customer. So I think it was really important for us to find a way to have the sellers that are rolling equity roll into the fund. And what we think that does is, is have them pick their head up and say, all right, how can I drive value, whether it's cross-selling or you know, customer introductions or sharing of resources across Workland as opposed to maximizing the bottom line at any one operating company? And we think over time, that's going to be a really powerful tool to promote the kind of cross selling that we think ultimately drives value where you know each IT business that joins Workland is going to want you know to, to prioritize selling cybersecurity our own cybersecurity quadrant in, into their portfolio of customers their customer base you know i think at the highest level instead of rolling equity and just having exposure to the operating company you know you really are sitting paripassu with just the LPs in the entire fund so, you know, the, the ultimate equity value that's created across Workland will be the equity value that that the seller shares in, you know, even if the seller only continues to operate at, at their individual company level. Yeah, that was a that was a a correction,
2: or not a correction, right? But I, you know, I I've seen I've seen it work other ways, right? Where you have companies under common ownership. But the actual operators who are making you know, day-to-day decisions on who to partner with and you know who to recommend for this customer, they don't they don't have any common ownership. And so they they recommend you know, their their buddy or they recommend whoever they they last spoke with as opposed to really teaming up with the providers under common ownership. So so we you know we try to be really intentional about creating a structure that would allow for a constellation of companies that don't just think about and care about their their own company's success, but that really benefit from company that's across, you know, on the other side of the country, but part of the Workland family or, or part of the Workman portfolio as well.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. I find management compensation super interesting, and I'd I'd love to keep chatting for another uh, hour or two, but unfortunately, we can't. So I'll I'll close here. But thank you both so much for coming on the podcast and sharing a little bit. This has been really really fun, and I hope we get to have you both on again here again soon.
3: Absolutely, I I think you know thrilled to, thrilled to be invited, and and you know love the podcast, Alex, and would we, love to join you again. Thanks again.
2: Yeah, Alex, thank you. It's an honor to, to be on here and I've always enjoyed listening. Hopefully we'll we'll continue to enjoy listening. Have a great day, man.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, Ravix Group, Overly Risk Strategies, and Oakborne Advisors for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast.